Hi, everybody. Uh, well, we are here uh, with our Bible study today, and with me uh, is Lexi and Kenzie to join us in the Bible study. Uh, if this is your first time watching one of these Bible studies, welcome. I'm glad that you are tuning in or listening to the study. Uh, this is our, I think, 33rd or 34th video or podcast going through the book of Matthew. We are in Matthew 26. And we have uh, just three chapters left in the book of Matthew. Um, someone walking by the office and giving a little oof from Kenzie. Um, we only have three chapters left in the book of Matthew, but I'm going to take my time uh, going through these last three chapters of the book of Matthew as we see um, Jesus getting closer and closer to uh, the crucifixion and then resurrection. So we're going to take our time. Today we're going to be looking at just a few verses um, we're going to, Matthew 26, we're actually going to break up into three talks. Um, next week, I'm excited, make note of this, next week we're going to be talking about uh, the Last Supper, and with that we're going to be talking about the New Covenant and communion and the Old Covenant. And we will be concluding by actually doing communion together. So next week, make a note of it. Have your communion elements. Have either grape juice or wine and have bread of some sort. If you want to be specific and get unleavened bread, you can. Um, most grocery stores will sell like matzah bread or um, you can get what most churches now use are just uh, uh, saltine crackers. Whatever you want to do. Um, we're going to do communion together, which you don't have to be an ordained priest to be able to do communion. And Jesus makes that clear, that this is something that everyone is supposed to do uh, regularly in remembrance of him and the new covenant. But that's next week's talk. So as far as uh, who I am, why I'm doing this, I know for those people who listen every week, I've said mentioned this before, but if someone's watching for the first time, I just want to explain it. My name's Dave. I'm not a pastor. I'm not a priest. Uh, I'm not a minister. I am a Bible student. Uh, those of you who know the story, a year and a half ago or more now at this point, um, I was very fervently praying. Uh, I felt like God wanted me to use me for something. But then I heard God say to me, um, not audibly, but very clearly, Dave, I appreciate, appreciate it, but I can't use you to the extent that I want to use you until you learn my word better. And that started me down the path that I'm on now. Uh, I am going through an uh, uh, educational program to get my master's in biblical studies. Simultaneously, while I'm doing that studying, I'm also doing these studies through Matthew. And as soon as we finish Matthew, I'm going to pick up Acts. Why? Why am I doing it? Because I love studying the Bible and I have a hunger and a thirst for it. And the best way to learn something is to teach it. So every week I am forced by, by doing this and making this commitment, I'm forced to do hours upon hours of research, digging into these different elements, and you get to be the benefit of it in, in just learning these different elements. And I am having so much fun. Uh, this being our 33rd or 34th video that we've done, um, I wasn't sure uh, how long it would take me and if I would enjoy it, but uh, I do. I get a kick out of these, and from the feedback I've gotten from people, you guys are enjoying them as well. So thank you very much for that. So before we get into uh, Matthew chapter 26, why don't you bow your heads and let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you that we are able to study it. Lord, I pray that you will speak through me and speak to the person that's listening today, that they would have a soft heart and open ears and willingness to hear what you would say to them. 
teach us something new about your character and about what we are called to do based on the, the, the cultural context and the story that Matthew writes down for us as it pertains to your life on this earth. Thank you, Lord. We love you, Lord. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so why don't you open up Matthew 26 and let's get going on this. Okay, we have just finished going through the Olivet Discourse. It's called that because Jesus gives that discourse uh, in the, on the Mount of Olives outside of Jerusalem, um, overlooking uh, Jerusalem. And that is Matthew 24 and 25. Matthew 24 was three studies and two studies ago in which I spent a lot of time talking about the end of the world and what is eschatology, the biblical view of the end times. And I tried to, in two studies that were roughly about an hour and a half each, paint the picture of what the end of the world is going to look like as Jesus and the Bible describes it. Then we had in Matthew 25, uh, which is the same thought, the same, the same conversation that Jesus is having, but we just broke it up into two. Um, is, okay, well, now we know that we're living in the last days. What does that mean? How are we called to live? So now we come to uh, Matthew 26, where um, we're going to see two different things that we're going to look at today. Well, really three. Um, One of them is going to be the plot from the Pharisees um, and the Sanhedrin to ultimately kill Jesus. We're going to see Jesus anointed uh, with very expensive perfume uh, in the town of Bethany. And we're going to see Judas um, start the process of betraying Jesus to the Sanhedrin. So that's it. We are covering 16 verses this week. That's it. Um, But I didn't want to rush through this um, and, and hit it too fast and just skim over stuff. I really wanted to take my time going through these. So why don't you pick it up with me on Matthew 26. Verse 1, after I have a sip of my coffee. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, As you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival they said, or there may be a riot among the people. Now, we've talked about this before, uh, Matthew 20, Matthew 21, I think we hit on this, the fact that we are coming up to Passover and the celebration that goes along with Passover. Um, Jesus is very intentional in when he is crucified and the fact that the celebration of Passover is a very good representation of Christ. And I'm going to explain that when we talk about the New Covenant but it is a picture. It's, it's an Old Testament story that is a picture of a New Testament truth. Um, and it takes place Exodus, uh, the book of Exodus, the story of Moses and God uh, rescuing the Israelites out of captivity under Pharaoh in Egypt and the plagues. And the last plague, he spares the Israelites through the celebration of the Passover lamb, the the slaughtering of the perfect one-year-old spotless lamb. And that in the process of them doing that, uh, the angel of death would pass over them in that process. 
That's Christ. That is a perfect representation of Christ, is that those who practice the Passover celebration in honoring Jesus and who he is in his death and his resurrection, he has made it possible for the angel of death to pass over us. Now, that doesn't mean that we're not going to die. It simply means that when we do die, we won't experience the great white throne judgment. I spoke about that last week, that there's two judgments. There's the great white throne judgment, which determines whether you go to heaven or hell. And, and those who are found in the book of life, this is all in Revelation, uh, those who are found in the book of life um, don't experience the great white throne judgment. We, we, we experience what's called the judgment seat of Christ or the Bema seat judgment, where that is a judgment on the believer, those whose name is written in the book of life. Those are anybody and everybody, past, present, or future, who acknowledges and accepts Christ as, and the sacrifice that he made on the cross. Um, as their Lord and Savior, your name is written in the book of life. Death passes over you in the sense that you do not experience the eternal death, which is hell. We get to go to heaven. So, uh, in, in coming back to this, um, when Jesus had finished saying all these things, that's the Olivet Discourse, he said to his disciples, as you know, the Passover is two days away. So the Passover celebration, we're, we're now thousand years uh, plus, and I don't know the exact amount of time since the Exodus story. I don't know how much time has passed since Moses all the way through in the history of Israel to get us to this point where we're at right now. But it's been a long time. And they're still celebrating the Passover. It's still celebrated amongst Jewish families today and amongst Christian families as well. You can do a Christian uh, uh, Passover celebration and see all the different cer uh, uh, ceremonial elements that are similar between the Jewish Passover Seder and all those elements that they practice and how Jesus, Jesus is represented in them. It's a really amazing, fascinating thing, especially if you're able to get a Messianic Jew to, to do the Passover celebration because a Messianic Jew is a person who is of Jewish heritage who believes that Jesus is the Messiah. So they're the best of both worlds because they have the whole history of uh, Judaism, of uh, what the Passover means to the Jew, but then they acknowledge the, the foreshadowing that it paints towards Jesus. But the important thing to get at here is the reason why Jesus is talking about this and the reason why Caiaphas just says that we're not going to do this during the festival because we might get a riot on our hands is because there are so many uh, pilgrims that are in Israel, in Jerusalem, to celebrate the Passover. So when we looked at, uh, I think it's Matthew 21, when we looked at the triumphant entry, um, the reason why there were such large crowds that were there is because, one, you have a very large group of people that is now following Jesus, but two, you have all of the uh, pilgrims, all of the, the tourists, more or less, that have traveled to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. So let's actually look. Um, so as you know, the Passover is two days away and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. We're going to take a look at Caiaphas now. But, so verse 3. Then the chief priest and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name is Caiaphas. Now one of the things that I've said before, and this isn't mine, I, the, a pastor that I absolutely love and follow and listen to, uh, Brett Metter from Athey Creek Christian Fellowship, he always says the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. And you can hold that to be true. I've got all my books, but the reality is if you want to know something about something that you find in the Bible, look it up and see where else it's mentioned. And the other mentions of it within the Bible give great context and explanation. So Caiaphas, we're actually going to uh, turn to John 11 
49, we get an explanation of who Caiaphas is. So John eleven forty nine. Got my place marker there. Yep, John eleven forty nine. Uh, there we go. Um, and I'm actually going to pick it up on eleven forty five. So this, for some context here, just before this in 11, and you can read it starting at verse 38, uh, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. So that's important context to know is that Jesus has literally just called his friend Lazarus uh, out of the tomb and he walked out and Jesus says, give him some food. Um, so then we have verse 45. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Specifically talking about raising a man from, from death, raising Lazarus from the dead. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for, for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. So I'm going to pause right there. And this is where we're also going to use um, some modern commentaries. This is the Bible dictionary that Zondervan puts out. And what we're going to do is I'm going to look at two different elements. We're going to look at the Sanhedrin. And we're going to look at the Pharisees. So first, let's actually look at the Sanhedrin, which is the, uh, the, the legal court system that ruled at this time. The Sanhedrin was a group uh, that ruled over, it was kind of like the Supreme Court. Um, it had both uh, religious implications in, the, in Jews, but it also settled issues among the Jews that were not necessarily religious in perspective. Um, they settled all sorts of different issues that were brought before them. But I'm going to read just a few things in here. Uh, the Sanhedrin was composed of 70 members plus the president, who was the high priest. Nothing is known as to the way in which uh, vacancies were filled. The members probably held office for life. The successors were likely appointed either by the existing members uh, themselves or by the supreme political authority. Since only pure-blooded Jews were eligible for office uh, of judge in a criminal court. Um, so that's it's an important thing to note. You got to be pure, 100% Jewish by heritage, um, that there's roughly 70 members and you have a high priest. You also have, um, there's a whole hierarchy of leadership roles uh, and they have terms that they would serve. The members of the Sanhedrin were drawn from three classes, the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. Uh, according to Josephus, in the time of Christ, the Sanhedrin was formally led by the uh, Sadducean high priests, but particularly ruled by the Pharisees, who were immensely popular with the people. The Pharisees were more and more represented in the Sanhedrin as they grew in importance. In the time of Christ, the Sanhedrin exercised not only civil jurisdiction, according to Jewish law, but also, in some degree, criminal uh, it could deal with, the Sanhedrin could deal with all those judicial matters and measures of an administrative character that could not be completely handled by lower courts or that of Rome. Um, it was a formal court of appeal that questioned all sorts of different elements of the Mosaic law. Um, it was the final court of appeal on the land. 
it alone had the right of judging matters uh, affecting the whole tribe um, of Israel, of all Israel. Uh, Josephus relates that even Herod did not dare disobey the summons from the Sanhedrin. King Herod the Great, uh, if he was summoned by the Sanhedrin, he would follow uh, the Sanhedrin. Now, so this is this is the court. This is the system. This is basically the Supreme Court. It ruled everything. Everything was decided by them. And as we read just now, this um, the Pharisees were the largest group uh, of the religious elite that were members of the Sanhedrin. And when we go into Acts, we are actually going to see and look at some members of um not only the Pharisees, but members of the Sanhedrin, as they play out in the early church. Now let's talk about the Pharisees. I've mentioned them before. Uh, I think we talked about them uh, at the beginning of 24, definitely in Matthew 21, 22, and 23. This is the longest single dissertation that Jesus has against the Pharisees. Um, the Pharisees were the religious elite, as, as I've discussed before. They were a group that... Um, they felt that the way to um, justification and righteousness and oneness with God was following the tradition of the elders and the Torah. The tradition of the elders is the oral, oral Torah. So these are the laws and rules that were passed down, not written down in the Torah or the Pentateuch or the first five books of the Bible, but that were created in addition to those. These guys took piety to the extreme, to the extent that they would literally count out the grains of pepper and put one aside for the Lord and nine aside for them. This is the extent that these guys uh, practiced uh, their religious rules because they believed that was the only way to be able to be counted righteous, to be able to have salvation. And this was the reason why um, Jesus, Jesus had so many harsh words against them is because they had so much pride. They were put in Moses' seat. You'll recall that that was said, that, that they put themselves in Moses' seat in this position of leadership, and yet they ruled over the people and didn't allow them to be able to grow closer to God. Um, and yet they themselves didn't even get close to God. They were whitewashed tombs that did all these things for show, but not actually to grow closer with God. And I opened this up to be able to describe to you all these things, and I'm sitting here telling you without, so I'm gonna read just a little bit. Um, I highlighted all of the elements that I think are important to share, because in this, on the Pharisees, there's like four pages. Um, of the three prominent fair, uh, parties of, the Jude of Judaism at the time of Christ, Pharisees, Sadducees, and the Essenes. The Pharisees were by far uh, the most influential. The name Pharisee, which is uh, Semitic, uh, which means the separate ones. The separate ones, that's what they call themselves. They were also known as uh, Chasidim, uh, meaning loved of God or loyal to God. Um, they wore distinctive garbs so that they could be easily recognized. They stood apart. They made sure they stood apart. They made sure that everybody noticed them. We talked about before the phylacteries, the things that they would put on their forehead that literally had passages. We've spoke about that before, that there were four Bible verses that they'd put in these phylacteries that they'd put on their foreheads and their arms, and they would wrap them around. I mean, they did everything for show to make sure everybody knew that they are set apart and holy among the Lord. 
Um, Jewish legalism was a huge part of their day-to-day lives, um, which began in earnest after the Babylonian captivity. Temple worship and sacrifice were ceased, and as a result of that, Judaism began to center its activities on the Jewish law and the synagogue, and the Pharisees studied the traditional exegesis of the law. That exegesis is the idea of digging in and, and how you study the scriptures and actually studying them. Um, the highest qualification uh, for membership was an ex- uh, a strict adherence to the law, oral and written. Uh, they also believed in Jewish nationalism, the Jew first before everybody else. As you recall, we talked about the Sadducees. Which the, Sa- the Sadducee was more of a political group, um, and their perspective um, was they didn't believe in the resurrection. They were much more of a political group. Um, And then you had the Herodians, which we talked about before, which was another group that wasn't mentioned here. And they were uh, um, globalists more so, whereas these guys are Jewish nationalists, Jewish first. Uh, The Herodians believed in Rome should rule over the Jew and that Rome should have global superiority. Almost done talking about the Pharisees. Got a a little bit more to to say. It was inevitable that the Pharisees bitterly opposed Jesus and his teaching. He, Jesus, condemned both their theology and their life of legalism. Clashes between Jesus and the Pharisees were frequent and bitter. As examples in the Gospels reveal, he called them a generation of vipers and condemned them for um, impenitence. I don't know what that means. I need to look that up. I-M-P-E-N-I-T-E-N-C-E. That's Matthew 3, 7. Condemn their, them, uh, he condemned their work righteousness. That's in Matthew 5, 20. Um, he upbraided their pride against others. That's Matthew 9, 12. He scorned their love, lovelessness on the Sabbath. That's Matthew 12, 2. He rebuked him for not being baptized. That's Luke 7, 30. He taught them regarding divorce, Matthew 19. On taxes, Mark 12. Uh, he condemned them for their covetousness, covetousness. Uh, that's Luke 16, 14. The Pharisees in turn accused Jesus of blasphemy. It's 521. And that's actually the, the thing that they accuse him for um, uh, guilty uh, enough to bring him to Pilate and ask for him to be crucified as blasphemy. Um, that's in Matthew 521. Uh, of being a, in league with the devil. That's Matthew 934. If you recall, um, the Pharisees accused him that the way he was casting out demons was because he himself was demon possessed uh, by Beelzebub. They accuse him of breaking the law, Matthew 12, 2. Uh, they often plan to destroy him. And that's Matthew 12, 14. Jesus' longest and most scathing rebuke of the Pharisees is found in Matthew 23, which I, I just mentioned. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead man's bones and everything unclean. I just painted a horrible picture of these guys. And rightfully so. And we, the reason why I'm taking the time right now in Matthew 26 to go over this is that we are going to see, as we go further in Matthew 26, the Sanhedrin is the group that arrests Jesus, that uh, uh, accuse him 
and then they are the ones who are responsible for, for putting him before Pilate, and they are the group that go before Pilate and demand that he be crucified, and they're the ones who um, incite the mob to get Pilate to crucify Jesus. So that's why I wanted to take the time to explain who this group is. But one thing that I do want to make a note of that is often missed, the idea behind the Pharisees is not a bad one. And the history of the Pharisees as a group goes back to the Maccabean Revolt. They wanted to know God. They wanted to do right. They wanted, at the core of their original intent, was to follow the law. That in and of itself is a good thing. But when you're following the rules and the regulations and you're just doing it for your own benefit, that's where Jesus has so, such harsh words against it is because the reasons why they did all the things that they did were just out of pride and not to actually grow closer with God. There are three Pharisees that are going to come into play when we get into Acts that I'm excited to talk about. These three Pharisees are all individuals who have a part to play and a role to play in the early church. And as you recall, um, Nicodemus is a character who was a Pharisee um, that he came to Jesus at night and he asked all kinds of questions of Jesus because he saw the truth in what Jesus was saying. As you recall, Nicodemus was the one who questioned about um, the idea of being born again. And he asked, he said, well, honestly, how am I supposed to be born again? What does that even mean? And Jesus comments and says, you of all people are supposed to be teacher of the law and you don't know what this means. And the idea of being born again, just as a small little tangent, is the idea of dying to yourself and being born anew as a Christ follower. You die to your old self, your old way of life, and you make a conscious decision to follow Christ. That's why it is imperative in order to be a believer that you make that decision of your own volition. You have to choose to accept Christ. There are some people who will say, well, I've always sort of been a Christian. And that always gives me pause because you should always have, you should have an, a knowledge of a point that, in which you said, I am choosing to follow Christ. And if you don't have that point, um, a baptism, a conscious baptism as an adult is a very good way to make it very, very clear, an outward sign that you are choosing to follow Christ. Wow, that's a tangent. Okay, so Pharisees. Nicodemus, we already mentioned. Uh, Gamaliel is going to come up in Acts 5. And the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul is going to come up in Acts. And the Apostle Paul, amazing man of God, who wrote the epistles of Paul. Um, the majority of the New Testament exists because of a Pharisee, a Pharisee among Pharisees who was uh, schooled by Gamaliel, I believe. I'm almost positive of that, that he was schooled by um, one of the, the high priests, is the Apostle Paul. Uh, and we're going to get into that when we get into Acts. Okay, this is supposed to be a short study, and uh, I'm getting long-winded. We're only like a few verses in. Okay, so I'm in John. I need to go back to Matthew 26. Okay, so, um, so Jesus says, oh, I skipped something. I apologize. I skipped an important part on verse 2. Jesus says, as you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. 
For you note takers, there are four times in the gospel of uh, Matthew at which Jesus predicts his death. This is the fourth of them. I would argue that there are actually five, but there are four that Jesus mentions uh, that are very obvious. Um, so for you note takers, Matthew 16, 21, Matthew 17, 22, Matthew 20, 17. So I'm going to say those again. Matthew 16, 21, Matthew 17, 22, Matthew 20, 17. Those are all situations in which Jesus is talking to his disciples and he explains to them that he is going to be crucified. That he is, well, excuse me, this is the first time that he actually says how he is going to be killed. But in the other ones, in fact, let's just flip through to these real quick. You don't have to turn to, the, to these with me if you don't want, um, you can just jot them down. So Matthew 16, 14 16.4 is the first one. Um, oh, excuse me, not that one just yet. 16.21. 16.21. I apologize. I'll get to that one, which is another sign. We'll come back to that. So Matthew 16.21. Um, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. This is also where we hear Peter um, take him and set him aside, pull him aside, and Peter says to him, no, Lord, it'll never happen. I won't let this happen. This is where Jesus rebukes Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. Uh, very harsh words for Peter, especially um, right after he had, had just said out loud that Jesus is the Messiah and Jesus had such good words for him and says, on this rock, I will build my church. Um, talking about um, Jesus being the Messiah is that, that rock. And we talked about in Matthew 16. Okay, so then the next one uh, that we'll hit on is Matthew 17, 22, which is just one page over for me. 17, 22, uh, Jesus predicts his death a second time is the title here. When they came together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And on the third day, he'll be raised to life. And the disciples were filled with grief over that, understandably so. Their leader is saying that he's going to be um, killed. And then you have Matthew 20, 17. Uh, Matthew 20, 17. Now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. On the way, he took the 12 aside and said to them, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death. and will be handed over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he'll be raised to life. Excuse me. I made a mistake there. This one, the third time that Jesus predicts his death is when he mentions the, crucifix the crucifixion. I said that the first time was here in Matthew 26. This brings up an awesome uh, re reminder. Acts 17.11. Memorize that. Acts 17.11 it is, is a, a good term that I've heard many pastors use. Is Acts 17.11 it. And what that means, that's the Apostle Paul um, who he was teaching, he was going around in the early church, and this is an Acts that we'll see this, and he's teaching at a, a church, and he found uh, it amazing that at this one synagogue in particular, the people there, these are the Bereans, they would every day after the, the teaching that Paul would do, they would go home and they would search the scriptures to make sure what Paul was saying was true. 
And we are called as believers to do that today. When you listen to a sermon, when you listen to anybody talk, you should have your Bible open, you should be jotting down notes, and then afterwards, if something doesn't quite feel right, you should make sure that what that person is saying is true because I am totally fallible, as is proof right here. I just screwed up. But your leaders, the, 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 the pastors and churches, anybody who you follow is fallible. They can make mistakes. So it is our responsibility to have our faith be our own, and you should act 1711 it, meaning that you should go and make sure whatever you hear, make sure it's true. Make sure it's biblically based. This is the foundation that we should, should have our whole faith on is, is the Bible. So that is the third. And then the fourth one is here in Matthew 26, 2. The Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. The fifth one in Matthew that I want to mention is Matthew 16, 4, in which, uh, and that was the first one that I, I started to read, but um, this is the dem demand for the sign. And so Acts 16, excuse me, not Acts, Matthew 16 um, the Pharisees and the Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. He replied, when, when evening comes, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red, and in the morning today it will be stormy, uh, for the sky is red and overcast. This is the, where you get this, the saying, red sky at night, sailors take delight, red sky in the morning, sailors take warning, same idea. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. I talked about this when we did Matthew 16. The signs of the times were all of the healings that Jesus was doing. The, the deaf were, were, were being given hearing. The, the blind were being able to see. Demons were being cast out. Um, all of these miracles were foretold all throughout the Old Testament as signs of the Messiah coming. And that's what Jesus is talking about, is that you can see all of these signs and you interpret the skies, but you can't interpret the signs of the times right now. Uh, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. Jonah. Now, I, I spoke about this when we hit Matthew 16. What's the sign of Jonah? Well, Jonah was swallowed up by a gigantic fish and was in the belly of the fish for three days and then was spat up on the shore. That is a perfect picture of Jesus. He is going to be swallowed by the fish, more or less. He's going to die. He's going to be buried, be in the ground for three days, and then come back to life. I believe that when Jesus says this, that that is also uh, a foreshadowing of him being the fulfillment of that sign of Jonah. He told the Pharisees and the Sadducees that the only sign that they would receive is the sign of Jonah. Well, Jonah was a, a prophet from a long time ago. In their lifetime, the sign of Jonah that they would see is this idea of Jesus um, being resurrected. And then the last verse that I want to mention on this is John 2.19. John 2.19 is, uh, is, is that which when Jesus is questioned in John 2.19, this is when he's casting out all the people from uh, inside the temple courts, all the money changers, uh, all the greed, the, the tax collectors, all these people who were um, uh, making money off of the sacrificial system. He casts them out. And then the Pharisees uh, question him, on what authority can you do this? And Jesus at this point says um, that when you destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it again. 
The Pharisees uh, were livid at this, and this that statement will actually come back further in Matthew 26. They'll use that to indict Jesus for claiming that he was going to be able to rebuild the actual structure of the temple that took 45 years to build. Jesus was talking about his body being the temple that he would raise um, from death, that he would bring back to life. Okay, on to verse number uh, four. So we've talked about, so I'm just going to start at three again. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. Now, I jumped over it, but in, in John, when we looked at that, uh, John 11:49. Um, in fact, I'm jumping back to that. I'm sorry, guys, I'm going all over the place today. But... Um, in John eleven forty nine, Caiaphas actually gives us some great insight. Um, so Caiaphas says, you know nothing at all. So they were talking about Jesus and how they were worried about both losing um, the temple and losing their courts because um, Rome was going to come and take over. And that's what we were just looking at Matthew 26. Caiaphas is talking to the Sanhedrin, to the group. He says, you know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. And I'm going to keep going, Matthew, or excuse me, uh, John 11:51. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Do you understand what's happening here? Caiaphas is the high priest of this religious order, the the high court system uh, of 70 uh, uh, officials that are all of the highest level uh, of the land that decide all of the elements. They are worried about Jesus because he's making such an uproar. And Caiaphas is saying that it is better for one man to die than for Rome to come in and take over completely and use this riot that's going to happen as an excuse to destroy us. And actually in AD 70, that's exactly what happens. AD 70, uh, Titus comes in, the Roman general, and absolutely sacks and destroys Jerusalem and the temple. And what they fear happens. But the point that, that I'm saying here is that Caiaphas and the Uh, Sanhedrin, they want to kill Jesus, and in doing that, they believe that by killing Jesus, it will unite Israel together, because then this this, uh, upheaval, this, uh, um, this, this guy, this Jesus, this prophet, this, this individual will go away and they will be able to have unity again and they will, the, the people, the Jews, will no longer listen to this Jesus character. They will now follow them, this, uh, the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin, and they'll be back to being unified. The amazing thing is Caiaphas's words come true, and it's totally true that Israel will be united but they'll be united under Christ. Now that's not gonna come to pass until Jesus' second coming, which we talked about in Matthew 24. So 
That's why it's so powerful, these words, where, where the Sanhedrin is trying to kill Jesus for what they think to be a good reason, but they, in doing this, are fulfilling all the prophecies of the Old Testament that talked about the fact that the Messiah must be pierced, that he must die. And we're going to talk about the new covenant next week. So now we're going to go on, uh, uh, continue on verse 6, Matthew 26, 6. While Jesus was in Bethany, in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. So, some context for you. A little bit more information here. This perfume, this is also called, uh, the perfume is called nard or spike nard. Um, and I did look it up in here and it gives a whole explanation of it. It's a very expensive, very expensive perfume um, that is still made today. You can find it in Tibet is where they get it from, um, is where it's, it's, it's cultivated today. Um, but as far as being expensive, this is how expensive it was. The vial that she used uh, is said to have likely cost the equivalent of one year's wages. And I've used this before when we were talking about um, uh, the tenant uh, or the uh, um, the parable of the tenants or the parable of the bags of gold, in which we talked about. Um, uh, the denarius and the fact that one person, this was just last week, one person was given four bags of gold, another two, and another one. And it was the equivalent of $4 million, um, and then uh, $1.6 million, and then $600,000. In the same way, if we're to use the idea of a denarius being one day's wages, then based on that idea of it is, is that this would be the equivalent of in one year's wages, in modern terms, it'd be roughly $40,000 is the average person's salary. So the cost of this little tiny jar of perfume was $40,000 is the perspective that we should have. That that's how expensive this was. So you can understand how um, the disciples were like, this is such a waste because they have just been, uh, Jesus has been preaching. Uh, he's been talking about taking care of the poor and talking about, uh, about living a selfless life and that those who want to be first must be last and that you must give up everything in order to follow Jesus and all these things that Jesus has been talking about. And all of a sudden, this woman takes this extremely expensive perfume and wastes it. Well, the important thing to remember here is, is that Jesus is God in the flesh, in their presence. And what this woman is doing is an amazing thing. It is a beautiful thing. It's not a practical thing by any means whatsoever. And the, the individual who likely was the one who says um, that this perfume could have been sold at a, at a high price and the money given to the poor is likely Judas. And the reason being is he was the keeper of the purse of the money. We know that. We know that Jesus was the one that was responsible for the budget for 
the disciples. So it's very likely, and it also fits in his character that we're going to see in the next verse, that it was Judas who said this. Um, but the important takeaway here and the question that I have for you, last week we looked at kingdom resources and the fact that this woman sacrifices an amazing amount of money, which money is an example of a kingdom resource, time, money, uh, our blessings, our gifts, these are all kingdom resources. And Jesus, in the last talk we, we did, talks about the fact that we are called to use these resources for his benefit. What is it that you could potentially do that is an outrageous thing that might seem insane and might seem crazy and outlandish, but that you could do that would honor God? Now, be careful. One of the things that I would caution with this, as I say this, as I make that suggestion of be uh, audacious, be uh, crazy in, in the, the, the things that you do for God. But remember what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount and the fact that he said that don't let your left hand see what your right hand is doing when it comes to giving. Because the idea there is, is that you do not want anybody to know what you're doing. Why? Because if you do something that is big and great and amazing, and you do it and everybody sees it and everyone says, oh, that's amazing, that's so wonderful, you're such an amazing person, thank you so much for doing that, that's the extent of your reward. You get no benefit other than that. You're doing it for prideful reasons. So when you do something that is really cool and awesome, do, do something. Do things that are crazy and out there for God. Give amazing amount. Uh, give to the extent that it, it stings and hurts a little bit to something that you feel really drawn to. Make sure that it is a godly thing that you are investing into and that the Holy Spirit is guiding you to do that. But do that and do it in private. Do it anonymously. That was a tangent. Okay, so now we're going on to verse 14. Then one of the 12, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? It's Jesus. So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. We learn from Mark 14, 11, which is Mark's um, gospel on this, Mark's take on the story. The chief priests were delighted to hear this news. The timing of it was, was perfect. We start Matthew 26, Verse 3, the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace. They're trying to figure out what to do. They make the decision to kill him because of what Caiaphas said, that we got that from John eleven forty nine. 49. It's better for one man to die rather than this upheaval to continue and this division amongst Judaism. We need to kill Jesus so that we can unify uh, Israel together again. So they're looking for a way to kill him. Simultaneously, you get Judas Iscariot who betrays Jesus and we will see that, um, we will see that actually not next week. I'm going to take all next week to just do uh, Matthew 17 through 30, uh, excuse me, 26, 17 through 30, and look at the Last Supper, um, and look very closely at what the new covenant is that Jesus makes and uses the example of the bread and the wine um, to do that, to, to, to say that covenant. But uh, one thing that I want to note is that uh, from a financial standpoint, the 30 pieces of silver 
The 30 pieces of silver is the equivalent of 120 denarii. And uh, a denarius was, again, um, the idea of one day's wages. Uh, and so if you multiply this out, this is roughly, in modern-day terms, uh, $13,000. So Judas betrayed Jesus for 13 grand. It is a lot of money. And in his time especially, um, Judas probably didn't have a whole lot. He'd been following around with Jesus, so 30 pieces of silver was a lot of money uh, to be able to receive. Um, but I think it's interesting that we see this woman, uh, that we don't know who she is. Uh, the Bible doesn't tell us this, um, that she breaks this alabaster jar of perfume that is valued at 40 grand, and she's remembered forever. And the reason being is, is that, that wherever this gospel is preached, her story will be told of what she did. I'm sharing it with you now, 2,000 years after the fact. But I'm also telling you about Judas and the decision that he made financially um, for $13,000 to um, give over Jesus. So that wraps up um, this week. I want you guys to bow your heads and pray with me. Lord, thank you. Thank you for the sacrifice that uh, this woman made and the example that she is to us today. Um, she gave up something that was extremely valuable uh, to honor you. And the question that, that we should ask ourselves, that we should ask ourselves, is what would you call us to give up, to sacrifice, or to give of our kingdom resources to honor you? I pray, Lord, that you will put that on our hearts. Thank you, Lord, um, for your word and for speaking to us. I love you, Lord. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs> Can you see her in the wide angle? <laughs> Hi, Kenzie. Are you relaxed? Is this what it means when Jesus was uh, reclining in the chair? I don't think he was this laid back uh, when he was reclining in the chair when the oil was put on. <laughs> Kenzie, you are a riot. I love these dogs. Uh, and here comes Lexi. She's, she hears attention is being given out, and so she needs to come and say hello. Hi, Lexi. Yes. Hi, Lexi. Come here. Good girl. So that's it for this week. I love you guys. Thank you so much for tuning in. Um, please join next week as we look at uh, further into uh, Matthew 26, as we look at the Last Supper, and as we look at uh, the new covenant that Jesus is going to make in his blood, and the example that the bread and the wine gives us um, that we are supposed to practice to this day. Love you guys. I will see you next week. <laughs>